0: Welcome to the Darrell McLean Show. I'm your host Darrell McClain and let's get into our episode.
1: this money. It's T-Bone from T Bone and Chickpea with in the
2: morning. Now available in podcast format. Simply search for the T-Bone and Chickpea Podcast available wherever. Find podcast or so.
0: The Darrow McLean Show is fully listener supported. Independent media that won't lead you to tribalism. You can get a membership for as little as three dollars a month at www.patreon.com/ slash the Darrow McLean Show. We talk about a lot of serious topics on this show. One very serious topic is women's health. One company that stood out to me was vslay.com because the owner is very transparent about her own struggles in the women's health department and has great customer service, great deals, and frequent sales. You can check her out, her great customer service, products about women's health, and frequent sales at www.vslay.com. That is www.vslay.com. It's uh, very rare that I do a show that is uh, entirely or uh, somewhat me-center about something that I find particularly interesting or somebody that had a profound impact on me personally. It was sad to me when I got the news while at uh, my job that the former and now late uh, college professor writer of children's books and feminist theory and she wrote about everything from love to politics uh, spirituality So and It was Dr. Bell Hooks And She passed away uh, Surrounded by Friends of illness it just says illness We don't know what it was now And I want to Do this episode As a Tribute to her And somewhat tell you about myself, how I discovered her, as well as listening to a bit of her uh, her work as well. So this is going to be a one-topic episode all about uh, the late Dr. Bell Hooks. So the quote of the day is, We must live by fundamentally dialectical principles that progress comes only from struggling to resolve contradictions. That's a quote from Dr. Bell Hooks from one of her pivotal works, Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism.
3: You know, Baldwin was someone, for example, who wrote a lot about love. He was very interested in the question of love. And yet, in his time and in his day, he probably could not have written a book on love that would have received a great deal of attention. Because I think in his day, people would have said, well, what does this you know, homosexual black man from Harlem have to teach us about love?
4: How did his, his thoughts on love impact your three books on love?
3: Completely and utterly. I mean, when he talks about the whole idea of he says that if you can't suffer, you can't grow up. Or, you know, my favorite Baldwin quote that I'm telling people all the time, he, he defines sentimentality. And this is Baldwin at his most queenly and lavish. Sentimentality, Baldwin says, is the ostentatious parading of excessive and spurious emotion. It's the mark of dishonesty, the inability to feel. And, th- and that's Baldwin saying that if we want to do the work of love, we've got to give past shallow sentiment. We've got to be willing to do the hard work. And he does it in his writing. He does it to illuminate, you know, what does love really mean? He tried to elevate the relationships between gay men past the sexual and to really get to that place of the emotions, of how can people be humanized in the act of loving? How can people be transformed through erotic and romantic connection? And that's a very different Baldwin from er, the early Baldwin writing about race, it's the Baldwin of, of longing, of yearning for his own space of love and wholeness. And I took all of that as something that inspired me in writing Salvation, Black People and Love. He's there from the very beginning because he was one of the, the thinkers who really put that on the table. Are black people going to allow themselves to be so dehumanized? by the impact of racism and other forms of domination, that we're going to miss out on love.
0: How bell hooks got me through a tumultuous year of my life. This is a piece by Alice Driver. So in 2004, while waiting for customers at the local coffee shop where I worked in Berea, Kentucky, I wrote in my notebook, the one person who will never leave us, whom we will never lose is ourselves. Learning to love our female selves is where our search for love must begin. I read Bell Hook's Communion, The Search for Female Love, the book from which this line is taken, and and those words have stayed with me ever since. During my free time at work, storing in under the cash register, we had customers I discovered Ain't I a Woman, Hook's most famous book. In a woman's studies course at Barua College, it was my first encounter with the more elusive or inclusive idea of feminism, one that centered the experience, history, and labor of black women. I remember waiting for Hooks to enter the coffee shop so I could meet her in person and ask her to sign the book. Growing up in Arkansas, I struggled to find writers whose stories reflected the challenges of being a woman in rural America. I found Hooks as a woman from rural Kentucky relatable, her issues and criticisms as inviting as they were incisive. I graduated from Brewer College with an English major in 2003. Brewer hired Hooks after I graduated, so I did not get to take classes with her. But I did see her radiate self regularly at the coffee shop. I wanted to ask Hooks for writing advice and have her sign a book for me. But I had to build up my courage to approach her. I was afraid to admit how badly I wanted to be a writer. At that time, I had only sold one article for $20, and I did not feel like one yet. When I think of Hooks, who died Wednesday at the age of 69... I'm reminded of the way she made black feminist theory accessible to different communities she inhibited, changing lives with her inclusive and radiant energy and words. She was born in Hopeville, Kentucky in 1952 when the town was still segregated. In 2016, Hooks wrote that when her dear friend Gloria Steinem had asked her why she was returning to Kentucky, she realized... Although it was not her intent, these words conjured stereotypical images of Kentucky. Tin can trailer parks, poor white trash rednecks, broken down pickup trucks, dirty uneducated folks, black and white, and even more profoundly the absence of any progressive face. It is just these negative images of Kentucky that I had left behind. I deeply respected her decision to return to Kentucky as I had similarly complicated feelings about Arkansas where I grew up. I read the biographies of authors I respected obsessively, and many of them reflected on the idea that New York and San Francisco, cities that I had never visited, were the epicenter of writing world of intellectual ideas. Like Hooks, I felt like I had to leave behind certain negative images of Arkansas, The stereotypes that others recounted to me about impoverished, uneducated mountain folk. I desperately wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know how to make money writing. Instead, I was making lattes while living in a cabin with an outhouse in the woods. I had grown up in the rural Ozark Mountains with an outhouse, and I thought about that living in such conditions would allow me to save money. And I hope that by saving money, I will be able to make space to write. I believe, as Hooks wrote in Communion, the truth is that finding ourselves brings us more excitement and well-being than any romance has to offer. And somewhere we know that. I just want to say that quote again. The truth is that finding ourselves brings more excitement and well-being to anything romance has to offer. And somewhere... We know that. I knew since my first memories that I wanted to be a writer, and my love of writing held more interest for me than any romantic relationships. In Hooks, with her focus on making feminist intellectual and theoretical work accessible, I found a companion. Hooks made me feel less alone and strange in a world that generally celebrated women for milestones related to traditional romance, such as marriage and children. In Bone Black Memories of Girlhood, she wrote... This is my home, this dark bone black inner cave where I'm making the world for myself. As she did for me, she showed so many how to make A Feminist Life a writing outside of the stereotypical narratives offered up to women. Berea College is one of the 80 federal recognized work colleges in the U.S., meaning that the college accepts low income students and students work on campus in exchange for tuition. I was thankful to have graduated from Berea College with no debt, a rarity among my friends, many of whom uh, accumulated tens of thousands of dollars in debt. While at Berea, Hooks, the distinguished professor in residence of Appalachian Studies, opened the Bell Hooks Center, an inclusive space for historical underrepresented students. In 2017, she dedicated her papers to the college, ensuring that future students would have access to her work. When I first met Bill Hooks at the coffee shop, I was surprised by how tiny she was and her joyous energy, which made me, which made people turn toward her as if she were the sun and they sunflowers. It took me a few weeks to build up the confidence to approach her. One morning, she, she ordered coffee. I pulled communion, the search for female love from underneath the register. She wrote, love connects us. In her dedication, she told me to keep writing. Her words buoyed me through that tumultuous year. And I did keep writing. I haven't stopped. I returned to Berea College in 2015, the year I published my first books to see Bell Hooks in conversation with Gloria Steinem. I carried Hook's her words and her life with me then, as I do now, and will always.
3: What strikes me as so amazing is that we have in our wonderful democracy, people who are trying to return us to that culture of fear. When I grew up in Hopkinsville, I really was afraid of most white people. And of course, as I went out into the world, as what I call a Kentucky cosmopolitan,
2: <laughs>
3: I found white people who are just as committed to love and justice as myself. And I had written a lot about coming back to Kentucky. I felt like I would never. I was like I would never go back to live in Kentucky. I'd be sending my ashes home in a box. <laughs> but increasingly. The rest of the world, in all the things that I didn't want to deal with, imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, was as fiercely there as it was in Kentucky. So it was wonderful to be able to come home to Kentucky, to be the Kentucky writer influenced by our life in the hills, to be a person of courage, to be self-determining, and to be a person of love. And so, I'm just going to close by talking about resistance. I actually had this fantasy that we would all stand up and sing, We Shall Overcome, because for me to be here and to receive this award is a victory. Imagine moving from racial apartheid, moving from being in schools in Kentucky where I was told black people didn't write books. Um, And to overcome all that we as Kentuckians and as black Kentucky writers have overcome, it's amazing. And I really feel we're part of a new Kentucky. We're part of a progressive Kentucky. We're part of a Kentucky that is standing up. I see my presence here as both a celebration and a victory. A celebration of all of those black folks in Kentucky who made it possible for me to move out of racial apartheid into a world of hope and beauty and promise.
5: The world is a lesser place today without her. Acclaimed author Belle Hooks dies at 69. Belle Hooks, a Hopkinsville native who went on to an international career as a hugely influential author, critic, feminist, and public intellectual, died on December 15th at her home in Berea. She was 69. She had been ill and was surrounded by friends and family when she passed, according to a press release from her niece, Ebony Motley. Gloria Jean Watkins was born on September 25, 1952 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, to V.O.D.'s and Rosa Bell Watkins, the fourth of seven siblings. She attended segregated schools in Christian County, then went on to Stanford University in California, then earned a master's in English at the University of Wisconsin and a doctorate in literature at the University of California at Santa Cruz. She adopted her great-grandmother's name as her pen name in lowercase letters, she told interviewers, in order to emphasize the substance of books, not who I am. She published her first book, Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism in 1981. Her literary career continued with more than 40 books of including essays, poetry and children's books. Her topics include feminism, racism, culture, politics, gender roles, love, and spirituality. In 2004, she returned to Kentucky to teach at Berea College. Another book, Belonging, A Culture of Place, discussed her move back. In 2010, the school opened the Bell Hooks Institute at Berea College. The institute houses her collection of contemporary African-American art, personal artifacts, and copies of her books published in other languages. The center has attracted visitors such as Gloria Steinem, actress Emma Watson, and Cornell West. On Wednesday, West tweeted, She was an intellectual giant spiritual genius and freest of persons. We shall never forget her. In a 2018 interview with former columnist Tom Ebelin when she was inducted into the Kentucky Writers Hall of Fame, Hooks said that she wanted important people to come to the Institute to speak with local people. Lots of people aren't comfortable coming on college campuses for a talk. They feel like that's not their place, she said. The thing about the Institute is that its goal is to be this sort of democratic location. No degrees required. Hooks hugely influenced numerous writers across numerous fields in academia and beyond. Social media from around the globe exploded with news of her death. Oh my heart, author Roxane Gay tweeted. Bell Hooks. May she rest in power? Her loss is incalculable. Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, said on Twitter, The passing of Bell Hooks hurts, deeply. At the same time, as a human being I feel so grateful she gave humanity so many gifts. He shared a quote from her book. All about love, like all great mysteries, we are all mysteriously called to love no matter the conditions of our lives, the degree of our depravity or despair. The persistence of this call gives us reason to hope. Without hope, we cannot return to love. In 2018, Hooks said she was grateful to hear from so many people about how her writing had affected their lives and work. I want my work to be about healing, she said. I am a fortunate writer because every day of my life practically I get a letter. A phone call from someone who tells me how my work has transformed their life. She remained close with friends and family in Berea. She was one of my dearest friends and the world is a lesser place today without her, said one of her Berea friends, Linda strong A celebration of life will be announced at a later time. Hoke's family said that contributions and memorials can be made to the Christian County Literacy Council via PayPal, which promotes reading for children, or the museums of historic Hopkinsville Christian County where a biographical exhibit is on display. This story was originally published December fifteenth, twenty twenty one, eleven eighteen a.m.
0: Reaching for bell hooks in the darkness by Brittany Cooper. Last week, someone stole my purse. I briefly left my car unlocked while I ran into an eatery for a takeout. And when I got back inside, instinctively I reached for my bag, and it was not there. I looked everywhere for it. I drove all over town, hoping I had merely left it somewhere. To be easily retrieved, it was gone. I did not see the thief, but I knew that something had been taken. I felt the loss groaning internally over what it would mean to replace my license, credit cards, passport, vaccination cards. I did not freak out, however, I was prenaturally calm. This has been a seizing of losing valuable things. The cards can be replaced the people cannot. I'm tired of losing people. When the word came that Bell Hooks, the feminist luminary to whom absolutely every feminist of my generation owes a significant debt, had passed on, to be honest, the news hit me in a space beyond feeling. That is the kind of how grief is feeling right now. Like reaching for something familiar in a place where it should be and coming up empty. And then feeling the incredulity at the idea, at the cold hard fact that something has been taken. This thing that you need, that you were counting on to be there, is not. Again, I am, as I write this, pre calm. Incredulity, actually. Bell Hooks has died. That is unfathomable. So I have ceased trying to make it fathomable. It is feeling that I have had over and over again for the last 21 months of pandemic living upon hearing that mentors and friends of friends have gone on from pandemic-related causes or otherwise. I did not personally know Bell Hooks. We had many people in common. I knew she had read little of my work. I read and revered hers. I responded to the barrage of text messages informing me over and over again that she is gone by going into my makeshift home office and reaching for every single one of her books on my library shelves. Talking back. Communion, yearning, killing rage. I gathered them around and remembering at least one story attached to each book. One experience. But still, there are missing ones. I can picture them sitting in my actual office at work, which due both to the pandemic and professional circumstances I have not seen in two years. Feminist theory from the margin to the center. Breaking bread. Bone black. All About Love, Art On My Mind, Teaching to transess, Outlaw Culture. These books and so many more constitute a whole school of feminist thought all by themselves. Feminists love Bell Hooks books like Jay-Z or Stevie Wonder, Aficionados love albums. We know these books inside and out. We can quote our favorite lines. We remember the season of our lives in which her books were our companions, our pocketbook-sized preachers, always ready with a word. I hope the missing books of many of hers have come to love will still be there. So much of this season has been just this feeling, hoping fervently that the things are where we left them, That we can go back and pick up where we left off. To our great dismay, we keep on having to confront this dash hope of a return to the way things were. Things weren't as they should be anyway, of course. Then we must deal with the full range of emotions about all that has been taken. All that cannot be recovered. All that has been sullied. Touched against our will, forever and irreparably altered. Feminist Theories from Margin to the Center is one of those books with a sense of memory attached to it. Viscerally, I remember loving that book as a newly minted feminist and remaining a white girl in graduate seminar who dared to suggest that Shirley Bell Hooks knew better. When she had chosen not to include footnotes in many of her books of essays, I made sure my classmates knew better. Then I ever again mistake a black feminist scholar's intentional act of care for her audience, folks who had never pursued graduate study for a sloppy oversight? It felt important to me then that folks understood or understand that Black women intellectuals had a duty of care to their communities. How we said what we said would hit different, should hit different, because we weren't ever trying to impress other academics, at least not exclusively. We were trying to help other people imagine a new way in the world. Wrangling over the presence or absence of bell hooks footnotes might cause us to miss all the ways we rely on black women intellectuals' labor, often without citing them. It is Hooks who coined the term white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Now, now this is not from the author, this is from me. The term that I knew her from was imperial white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, but I'll continue. Every single time we are able in public discourse to use that constellation of terms, the name, the clusterfuck of political circumstances in which we find ourselves, we should remember on whose shoulders we stand. Her name is Bell Hooks. She spent nearly half a century helping us to both name things as they are and then imagine how they could be. Sometimes she was actually pushy about it. Courting controversy, writing classic, provocative pieces like Selling Hot Pussy and Penis Passion. There was that one time that she called Beyonce a terrorist. Even I lost my shit with her over that. But feminism ain't feminism and revolutions aren't revolutions. If we cannot sometimes disagree and still find our way back to each other. Bell always called us back to the table as evidenced by her instance insistence on being in deep community with feminists young and old reading our work, sending an encouraging word in the days to come, as my grief perhaps makes it ways back to a space where I can feel it, I know I will continue to reach for bell hooks. I know I will be the most careful to make sure that there. Where I left them. They bear the marks that to say that they are mine. Bell Hooks left more of herself to all of us than any black woman could ever owe to anybody. She did it as an act of love. What she left us cannot be taken from us. If you feel befret, look at your bookcase. Grab one of her books. Do as Toni Morrison told us in closing lines of jazz. Look where your hands are now. Our job is simply to remember to reach for her. If we do so, we will never come up empty. So I think this is a good enough time than ever to talk about my personal Experiences and journeys with bell hooks, and I found uh bell hooks when I was in the time of uh deep despair, and I was actually extremely suicidal. Um, my navy career had come to a stark halt, and it was for situations that I felt like were out of my control. I feel like I was unloved, unsupported, unwanted, subjected to random violence, and lost in the world, and there was absolutely nothing that I could do to uh, save myself from the abyss that was approaching bell hooks guided me through this amazing work she was doing at the new school and i don't even know how i found the work i had uh packed up my stuff after a a harsh breakup with a career that at, at that point in time I had given eight years to. And for all intents and purposes, I had planned to give uh, several more years to. I had had a very violent, volatile breakup and had been in a situation that wounded me up in jail and I was fighting for my freedom. I couldn't find a job and I packed my bags and I picked up and moved to home, back home to Florida in failure, in sin in shame and in sadness. I felt extremely defeated and somehow um, the Divine sent me this series this this series of lectures and it was on moving from pain to power and I watched that series and was transfixed just I remember oftentimes crying and 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 taking notes and trying to hear the people on the panel. I went to the local library in Jacksonville, Florida, and started to immediately try to consume all of of the works. The the first book I actually got was all about love, and I connected with it with it so much because of how deep and how she talked about the when when love she felt like love left. With her and the relationship between you know her parents a bit and I, I somewhat always struggled with that because in my own personal life, I was somebody whose mother um for the for the for my own sake gave me away but and it was the the most sacrificial and beautiful thing that she could do. But at the time when I was growing up, it caused me me a deep distress and pain. Um, I never felt like I was good enough. I never felt like I was good looking enough. I never felt like my words mattered. I never felt like my work was going to get me anywhere. And I internalized so much things and uh, struggled so much and... When I got this person who was this this towering intellectual who was funny and witty and kind and spiritual and free, it was everything that I wanted to, to do, everything I wanted to be. I was never a person who had these ambitions and dreams about what I wanted to do when I grew up. I just knew what being poor was and I knew I didn't want to do that. But there was a point in my life where I discovered when I was looking at Bell Hook's uh, work that I used to enjoy writing and I loved my creative writing classes and I could consume books. I was obsessed with ideas more than I was obsessed with people that I had thoughts and I used to write poetry and I even remember getting an award for it from the state at one time. Uh, But I had thrown all that away because somehow at some point in my life, I convinced myself that my words didn't matter. That my writing wasn't good. That even if I was telling the truth, uh, nobody cared. And I carried around this profound sense of hopelessness with me. Right up until I was 30 years old. And I was, I was you know, just in, in a position of life I didn't want to be in. And it was the one point in life that I was sitting... At my house. I lost. Everything that I had worked so hard for. I. Family was getting ready to celebrate. um, Christmas. Much like. We're getting ready to celebrate it now. Which is. Just. uh, Which is something I think about. Because I discovered bell hooks around this time. And you know as as recently as twenty fourteen right, and I everybody's celebratory, everybody's having a good time, and I remember bursting into tears in the corner, thinking nobody would see me, and the woman who is like my mom. Uh, my aunt denine asked me what was going on, and I told her I'm just not particularly proud of myself. I'm not proud of myself, and this immense sense of of failure, failure, and failing uh, haunted me. And I re- remember going home that night, and there was. A Bell hooks lecture where she said this thing about her brother who had addiction problems and who beat himself up so much because he didn't have money and he didn't have wealth, you know, material um, things. And she said, I tell him, look at the blessings of your life and you have overcome addiction and so many people don't even do that and I took that really small nugget and I started that day to build on it to to start to try to think again to not be afraid to think or to speak to not be afraid to write my thoughts to say them to to vigorously uh, say not only how I felt but to to feel deeply about how other people felt about situations to not be so quick to take sides to be very critical of information that was being presented to me Uh, bell hooks uh, flat out saved, saved my life by giving me her work and giving me an outlet and and calming the the noise of uh, suicide simply by talking about her own struggles and and everything else and I still to this day will go back and and reread a lot of her work. I will go to Audible because. I was able to buy some of her books on Audible and I can hear them all the time. I can go to YouTube and look at her residency at the new school and see all those interesting and entertaining lectures. And I am so happy that Bell Hooks opened herself up And allow me to sip from her cup of love and knowledge and wisdom and truth. And I do hope that she is resting in in power now. I hope that she has found the peace that surpasses understanding. Because she was the high priestess of love. And... There's an outpouring in my heart from all the love I have for her. And I will do my my very best to carry on that spirit of love and openness that she did.
1: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: It goes without saying that this show does not happen without listener support. Support the Darrell McLean Show by going to www.patreon.com and getting a membership for $3. Or you can go to buzzsprouts.com slash the Darrell McLean Show and hit the subscribe button and join there. Many ways to donate to the show. Independent media that won't reinforce tribalism. We have one planet. Nobody is leaving, so let us reason together. www.patreon.com slash the McLean Show, or go to Buzzsprouts and to the Darrell McLean Show and subscribe.
3: One of my concerns in coming here tonight was precisely that my voice as a black female voice would be overshadowed by homosocial bonding. Uh, in here and one of the things that eugene evoked was women and children and it seems to me that that in part part of why i i wish to see a greater voice from radical black women intellectuals is that i think many of us experience our intellectuality our stardom uh, our what have you very differently and that there that as as i listen i mean i I feel more and more divorced from this discussion precisely because i feel like i i think that my sense of being an intellectual first comes out of being nurtured by black women in black institutions the church the school and so i'm trying to i'm trying to think about what that means in terms of do we i like to suggest this is my point that we have something to learn from many voiceless black women who have been the people trying to keep alive the pursuit of intellectuality in diverse black communities, among all classes. And if, if, and if we don't have mechanisms to hear from those people, um, to hear from how, how those allocation of resources. I mean, one of the things that I think about is, um, Glenn, I, I recognize that I participate in capitalism. What I think about, that I never hear black intellectuals talk about, progressive affluent black intellectuals or conservatives, is what do we do with our money?
2: Mm -hmm. And if
3: we don't talk about how how we Mm -hmm. see a redistribution of resources that begins again fundamentally with what am i willing to give up i don't believe that if i am unwilling to give up some of my resources that i'm going to convince masses of other people that they should give up some of their resources because we know capitalism isn't going to end tomorrow we know that a lot of us black folks are going to be more affluent The question for me, then, is how do we share our resources within the diverse black community? And I see that as a concrete um, question. Um, For me, dealing with addicts in the family, the concrete question of codependency. To what extent do you share resources to enable, or to what extent do you share resources in the interest of allowing people to redeem their lives? I mean, to me, these are practical, concrete questions, and I venture to say that many black women are dealing with them. I mean, I tell my students all the time that black folks who are crack addicted aren't bleeding white people to death, that the source of of who gets bled is families Mm -hmm. um, Mm. and family life. So I think that if we want to look for a model of responsibility, we need to look at productive models in those domestic contexts where people are trying to talk about how
0: do you share resources effectively without further disenabling? Uh-huh. That, kind of, do you wanna- that particular clip was... and it, it, I'm obviously going to share everything in the footnotes of the show, but that one was the responsibility of black intellectuals in the age of the crack ec- epidemic. And that... You can look at that. It was at Harvard University Institute of Politics, John F. Kennedy School of Government years ago. And it's actually pretty pretty fascinating to watch that particular video. It's from 1992. And you see a lot of people that, are, the familiar faces you see today, the talk featured uh, Margaret Burraham, Henry Louis Gates Jr., Dr. Bill Hooks, uh, the, the very popular, uh, I, I love his voice as well, Glenn Lowry, Eugene Rivers, uh, and Dr. Cornell West. And this was all the way back in 1992. And, I mean, she just cut through, you know, all those men. And, and she, you know, she was the second woman on the panel and that is what Bell Hooks did—the way she was able to uh, call the spade a spade—to to to always pull an intellectual conversation. Because if you are uh, a conservative uh, black male, you know who Glenn Lowry is. Uh, Doctor Glenn Lowry is a brilliant, um, brilliant man. Um, a more conservative if you are a um more on the liberal side uh uh, or social justice side you then you know uh, who uh, Dr. Cornel West is if you are somewhere you know in the middle then you know Dr. Henry Louis Gates right and I was always so so I was somewhat disappointed in myself when I discovered uh Dr. Bell Hooks, because I already knew who Henry Louis Gates was, and I already knew who Cornel West was. I knew who Glenn Lowry was, and I just was thinking, why haven't I heard of this, this, uh, Bell Hooks? Where, where? And she taught at all the famous institutions, and she did all the, the correct things, and had all the correct papers. And then, and the more I got into her work, I said, oh, she didn't do that thing where she took those sides. Uh, she critiqued people who were powerful. Uh, she, she said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't. I, I, I remember one time when they asked her about safe spaces. She said, what are you talking about? I uh, would like a safe space where everybody gets to say what they think. And I thought that is, is why this, this particular woman... Uh, like her work has been somewhat quieted uh, because she does not she did not go along to get along you know
6: around the world are mourning this evening after the passing of bell hooks the acclaimed author, cultural critic, poet and feminist who died earlier today at her home in Berea, Kentucky at the age of 69 a trailblazing scholar and activist bell hooks Influenced generations of thinkers and writers with a voice that was always fresh and bravely honest. She wrote more than 40 books all about love, ain't I a woman, and where we stand are just a few. She was born Gloria Jean Watkins and she chose the name Bell Hooks as her pen name, spelled in all lowercase to put a focus on the ideas rather than her celebrity. In her work, Bell Hooks addressed subjects of race, gender, and class with passion and intellectual boldness, and she will be profoundly missed. Joining me now to talk about the life and legacy of Bell Hooks is acclaimed philosopher and activist, Dr. Cornel West. My brother, it's always good to see you. I wish you were under uh, better circumstances, but talk to me about who Bell Hooks was to you. My dear
7: brother, Bell Hooks was
6: someone who I loved
7: dearly, respected deeply. She was an intellectual giant, a spiritual genius, a titan, for freedom. He was a love warrior coming out of our community of black people, a hated people, but keep dishing out wounded healers and love warriors every generation. She was one of the great love conductors of what the Isaac Brothers called the caravan of love, my brother, or what the OJ called the love train. And it was connected to justice, it was connected to soulfulness, it was connected to Perseverance to resilience and to resistance, and they—it's uh, just hard to find words to describe um, who she was. But it's a major loss, though, man. It's a very, very sad yeah. moment in the history of our people, yeah. in the history of the American Empire, in the history of all oppressed peoples who love
6: freedom and will never stop in this in our struggle for freedom. It's, a, it's important that you use that word empire because one of the things that Bell talked about increasingly in her work, although it was always there, was the idea of white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal empire. She named the name. She was willing to point out the contradictions of our economic system, of our cultural realities, of our social practices. Can you just give my audience some sense of just how significant an intervention her work was in, 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 in the life of the mind?
7: That she had the kind of courage to get at the root. And by getting at the root, she knew she had to talk about imperialism. This is indigenous peoples, which is the settler colonialism of America, which is also the enslavement and dignified Africans, and also the exploitation of workers, no matter what color, and also the devaluing of oppression, gays and lesbians and, and, and trans and non-binary. So she had a holistic view. She was very critical of the neoliberal forms of feminism, the neoliberal forms of black uh, a struggle that would only talk about inclusion without talking about the class structure. That's why I was so glad you mentioned her text of 2000, where we stand: class matters. And she would hit this issue over and over again. You remember the book, the text that she and I did together on breaking bread and, oh, and insurgent black uh, life, brother. She hit the issue
6: back then, 1991. And wow. 30 I'm years glad later, you mentioned Bouguette. Breaking Bread. And by the way, that... No, no, we had definitely not caught up. That book, Breaking Bread, that you co-authored with Bell Hooks, actually not only was an influential book for me, but me and Mumia Abu Jamal, when we wrote our book, The Classroom in the Cell, we were modeling it after what you and Bell did uh, two decades know. prior. That was not... That was not a coincidence.
7: See it right there, brother? Yes, that's the
6: book
7: right there. Stations. With the smile, mm. you see? Because she always had love a smile with style, but I had no idea that your classic text was uh, was influenced by our, our text. I mean, Imani Perry is one of the great intellectuals of our day. And she was an undergrad at Yale working as copy editor on this, you know? And you know Sister Imani. I mean, it doesn't get too much people. And Imani, you got to go to Farrah Griffith to try to get some nice (laughs) people. So that it's it's, it's a way of gathering, connecting past, present, and future. And yet, even as we mourn, and even as we shed tears and never forget this precious daughter of Sister Rosa and Viotis and her sisters and and brothers coming out of Jim Crow, uh, uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, that she always had her eyes on the star. And she was not a coward. She never sold out. She never caved in. She never gave up. That's our bell hooks. Sisters of the Yam critiques of capitalism. Yeah. Critiques Critiques the patriarchy. And you know remember that remember that we real cool coming out of the genius of Wendell and Brooks, her book on Ooh, Black, Black Masculinity. masculinity. Ooh. Remember that text to brother? Did she get it on?
6: Did she man. hit the nail on the head. Ooh, what a corpus! What a corpus, man! Hey, there's nothing like. There's, there's simply nothing like it. If you're talking masculinity, you got we, you got we real cool. You got the will to change. If you're talking about education, That's she got she got class matters for the class and now The whole series on love, like South Beach, is all about love. Trans- That's right, though. But I mean, the the, the
7: various dimensions, and then you got the children's books. You got the poetry. She's unprecedented when you think of American letters, and especially as a black woman catching all the hell from, from from the patriarchal structure, from the uh, the, the, the predatory capitalist structure. So many black brothers not understanding. Sometimes even some of the black sisters loving her to death, but still having some envy every once in a while. And therefore, she had to come to terms with who she was, given her genius, her witness her calling and I would always tell her as a revolutionary Christian, Sister "Belle, you are anointed now you know she was a Buddhist Christian a Christian yeah. Buddhist so she had her own uh, combination and hybridity in that regard but she had an anointment man there's no doubt about that there's no doubt about that yeah, and I can no tell you this about stuff about about brother, brother Kevin who was uh, one of the caretakers and he said that she was listening to Gloria by enchantment. Gloria, oh Gloria. Sing, sing, sing. That's the genius coming out of Detroit singing Gloria, because her real name was Gloria. Why yes. but A pinned name, Bell Hooks, after her maternal great grandmother. What a force for good. What a towering figure in the history of the life of the mind and the
6: world of ideas, ideas sister. Bell Hooks let us simply know. editor and professor of English and Creative Writing at the University of Mississippi, KSA Lehman. I'm also joined by the always brilliant Dr. Brittany Cooper. She's an author and a professor. Take that associate off this screen at Rutgers University. <laughs> Welcome both of y'all to the show. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Professor Cooper. How did Bell Hooks change the way we think about these issues of race and gender and class?
8: Um, you know, there's still a profound uh, resistance in our communities to where black women struggle to call themselves feminists. And so Bell Hook, when I was a baby, you know, 1981 uh, publishes the book Ain't I a Woman and really sets the tone for a, dis- a public discourse in black communities about what it means to claim feminism, about what it means to say that our liberation is not just tied to the struggle against white supremacy, but then we've also got to think about the problem of patriarchy. We've got to think about the problem of male domination. Um, and so when I think about her legacy, I don't understand myself in the world as a scholar. Uh, and not just a black feminist scholar, but as a black woman from the deep south who dares to have a radical politics around race and gender without the work of bell hooks. So it is bell hooks that I first encounter at Howard when a friend dragged me to one of her lectures. And it's Bell Hooks whose work I encountered over and over again as I chose to claim the mantle of feminism as a graduate student. Um, and you know her work in words continued to guide my journey to what that means for me. Uh, and it's Bell Hooks who gave us the language for how to do pop culture critique and not just to talk about petty theory that nobody cared about, but to think about it in relationship to movies and music and artists that we love. Um, and so there is simply no ability to be a young black scholar writing today, writing for popular audiences, trying to connect and trying to think about the work of liberation without the, the, the body of work, uh, that Bell Hooks gifted
6: to us. can say, I want to think about Bell Hooks also in terms of the craft of writing. You know, one of the big bodies of work, uh, that she also engaged was books on that reflected on writing for me. Uh, Remember Rapture is one of my favorite books of hers because she gave me permission to think about myself as a writer and how to think about reflection and critical engagement and, and memoir and all these things. Uh, what influence does Bell Hooks have, in your estimation, on the practice of writing and, and writing as craft, not just writing as the, work, the cleanup work we do after we do all the heady thinking? <laughs> right. All right, that's a beautiful
9: question. And I just want to echo everything Brittany said. You know, I think... I don't make enough time to talk to people about how bell hooks' art dragged me through college, mm. dragged me through graduate school, and gave me the audacity to think I could create something I hadn't seen. And so like today, as we think and mourn, and I also want to sort of like hoist up narrative experimentation that we find in bell hooks. You know, coming up in the 90s, there were so many people, thankfully, who were giving us history um, who were giving us different clever phraseology, and we needed that given the high schools and the, and the communities that some of us came from that were like abysmally educated, even if they were overly educated. And then Hooks comes along, or we come to Hooks and we see someone who is, you know, giving us the clever phraseology, giving us the history, giving us the theory, but she's also narrativizing, narrativizing right? She's, she's thinking about what her body means to empire, right? Which makes me think about what my body means. To empire, she's making me question what it means to be a mm. want to be a black feminist, and so I just think it's really important to think about the way Hooks's practice literally turned into a praxis of revision for so many of us who were clinging and longing for something that saw us as 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 fleshy black human beings, like longing to create. And bell hooks, I think, is 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 the soul sort of like progenitor of that for me as a, as a black writer and from
6: Mississippi. Uh, Brittany, what Bell Hooks text for you stands out? And I know that she's written over 40 and I, I, it's hard to pick just one, but if you had to pick a Bell Hooks book that was most influential for you, what would it be?
8: You know, I'm going to pick a deep cut and say Talking Back is one of my favorite books. <laughs> uh, look, I, I love the classics, but Talking Back, you know, it, it was that thing where as a black girl in in the Southern kind of authoritarian household, you didn't talk back. And if you did, you could expect to be like, you know, bodily harmed for doing so. And so that was a book that she took that sort of thing about that kind of audacious way that black girls would try it and would talk back. And she spun a whole kind of theory around resistance and coming to voice uh, and what it meant to be a feminist thinker from that. Uh, and so she was a person who took these, everyday practices that happened in Black communities and helped me to sort of see what resistance looked like in in the way that I was learning a politics, both of domination in the home and in the community, and also what it meant to then take that same thing, you know, don't back talk me, girl, and and go into these spaces of empire uh, and actually give them all the smoke and all the back talk all of the time. And also then to understand that I had the agency to invite myself into a dialogue with people who thought that they were merely in a monologue, right?
2: Um,
8: Mm -hmm. and so, but you know, but it but it doesn't even do justice to her body of work to pick one text. It's like, you know, picking a favorite, you know, Stevie Wonder song or a favorite Michael Jackson. Like, you know, you can't do it, but it is the book that I first went to today when I found out she had passed and, and cradled in my hand because I think it was a book that was really central to my own ability to come to
6: voice and to push back at you. Well I can't say I apologize, brother. I only got ten seconds. Can you tell me the book though? All about
9: love, all about love. Without all about love there is no heavy and there is no me. Thank you.
6: There is no heavy and there is no me. Thank you and and heavy is one of the great books of, the, of, of this young century so that says everything Brittany, book britney say thank you both so, so much for joining me on the show it's been an honor having you and we're going to have you back to keep this conversation going there's a quote from bell hooks that strikes me some people said she read too much and she wrote too much and she responded to the latter she said no black woman writer in this culture can write too much no woman writer can write too much indeed no woman has ever written enough keep writing y'all in the honor and the legacy." bell hooks
3: the influential critic author and feminist bell hooks died today at the age of 69 she was at home surrounded by friends and family amna is back with a look at her work and her legacy
1: Born Gloria Jean Watkins, Belle Hooks grew up in segregated Kentucky in the 1950s and 60s. The daughter of a janitor and a maid, Hooks left home to attend Stanford University, where she earned an English degree. She went on to earn a PhD, and then authored more than 30 works under her pen name, which was taken from her great-grandmother. Her prolific writing spanned poetry, essays, and children's books, examining the intersection of race, politics, and gender, and making her one of the most influential black feminist scholars of the last half century. In 2004, Hooks returned to Kentucky to teach at Berea College and later founded the Bell Hooks Institute there. Here to talk more about her life and its impact is Imani Perry. She's the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Professor Perry, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. You reacted to the passing of bell hooks on Twitter by sharing this thought. You wrote, for exactly 30 years she was not only an intellectual influence but a presence in my life. Professor Perry, tell us about the impact that bell hooks
10: had on you. Well, I, I met her when I was 19 years old. I was an intern at South End Press where she published um, much of her work, and she was a teacher to her core, even though I didn't have her in the classroom. Um, she brought ideas alive. She is a person who bridged the space between you know, high critical theory, European scholars and intellectuals, Marxist thinkers, and everyday life, and she wrote and spoke in a way to make all of that theory applicable to our daily lives. And also she wanted it to bear upon the way we thought of each other ethically, our relationships, our personal stories. So she, so she was both an intellectual and she was also a kind of, um, I don't know, a curate, like a, a a person who tended to souls as an educator. And so to be brought under her wing as a as a teenager was incredibly influential. It allowed me to imagine how to live a life of the mind, but also how to pursue, you know, right relation to other human beings in my midst.
1: So as we mentioned, she was born Gloria Jean Watkins. She took the pen yeah. name, Bell Hooks, which was her great grandmother's name. What do we know yeah. about why she took that name and why all lowercase when she used it? Yeah, I mean, she w- it was consistent with
10: leftist organizers of the era to think of one, the individual and in the lowercase that one spoke in the collective, right? So her name was both an homage to her great-grandmother and the women who came before, but also with a kind of humility to choose the lowercase. Um, uh, and, you know, she was very much I mean, she traveled the world. She had a massive influence. She was a southern country woman to her core. Um, and and she she'd never lost touch with that. You know, it was. And so there was a kind of intimacy with that identity that she held on to um, through through her, her pen name as it were. But I always called her Gloria.
1: And she mentioned those Southern roots, growing up at the intersection of racism and sexism. Um, she spoke about it in this 2016 talk at St. Norbert College in Wisconsin. Take a listen to what she said.
3: I think that many of us as females find sexism is so normalized, whereas people of color, black, brown, whatever, when we hear a racist joke or, or racism spoken not as a joke, we really feel assaulted and our sensibilities but sexism is such a woven into the fabric of Mm. our daily lives that i think it's harder for people to, to resist
1: professor perry how did that lived experience show up in her work well she you know she told a lot of stories
10: from her own life you know she in many ways was an open book she allowed herself to be vulnerable um, and she contemplated. So the way that she engaged with people, and she was she was outspoken, and she could be really challenging, was to open that up. That feel those to explore those questions of internalized sexism, internalized classism. How do we love each other? I mean, those. So that kind of exploration um, was. I mean, that was consistent with who she was. And for me, it allowed me to think all of the the sort of academic things I was pursuing, they boiled down at its, to the very core about how we are going to live and how we're going to coexist on this planet. Right? Um, that, I mean, that's
1: who she was. It has been four decades since her first full-length book, Ain't I a Woman?, was published and you have to note that a lot of the ideas she brought up back then about black women and feminism and white feminism and the intersection of race and sex and all of these things, we're still talking about those things and grappling with them today. What do you think a legacy of those ideas that she raised four decades ago is today? Well, I, th- I think her
10: legacy is enormous, and part of you know this incredible body of work that she that she created. The legacy that's found is there are so many young people. The first time they start to think seriously about class, about sexuality, about gender, about identity, about vulnerability, about spirituality, is through her work. You know, her work has never gone out of press. That Am I a Woman? You can still purchase, right? And so. The legacy is actually in all of us who have been influenced by her work, not just in academia, in every sector of the society, in organizing, in nonprofit worlds, in corporate America. And so, I, I mean, it really has, she has shaped several generations of thinkers uh, and of, of people who are members of communities. And so, I hope that at this moment, it becomes a, a time for us to reflect on how much she helped us think, how much she helped us grow, right? And how she pushed the world closer to justice.
1: An incredible life and an enormous loss. Professor Imani Perry, uh, Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Gloria Jean Watkins was born on September 25, 1952 and died on December 15, 2021. She is better known by her pen name, Bell Hooks, She was an American author, professor, feminist, and social activist. The name Belle Hooks is borrowed from her maternal great-grandmother, Belle Blair Hooks. The focus of Hooks's writing has been the intersectionality of race, capitalism, and gender, and what she describes as their ability to produce and perpetuate systems of oppression and class domination. She has published more than 30 books and numerous scholarly articles, appeared in documentary films, and participated in public lectures. She has addressed race, class, gender, art, history, sexuality, mass media, and feminism. In 2014, she founded the Bell Hooks Institute at Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. Gloria Jean Watkins was born in in Hopkinsville, a small, segregated town in Kentucky, to a working-class African-American family. Watkins was one of six children born to Rosabel Watkins and Theodice Watkins. Her father worked as a janitor and her mother worked as a maid in the homes of white families. An avid reader, Watkins was educated in racially segregated public schools. Later writing that this is where she had experienced education as the practice of freedom, She describes the great adversities she faced when making the transition to an integrated school, where teachers and students were predominantly white. She graduated from Hopkinsville High School before obtaining her B.A. in English from Stanford University in 1973, and her M.A. in English from the University of Wisconsin, Madison in 1976. During this time at 19 Watkins was writing her book Ain't I a Woman?, Black Women and Feminism, which was officially published in 1981. In 1983, after several years of teaching and writing, she completed her doctorate in literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz, with a dissertation on author Toni Morrison. You're about to watch some of her last moments before death. Rest in power, Queen.
3: To have some language that would actually, um... Remind us continually of the, the the interlocking systems of domination that define our reality, and not to just have one thing be like you know, gender is the important issue, race is the important issue. But for me, the use of that that particular jargonistic phrase was a way, a sort of shortcut way of saying all of these things actually are functioning simultaneously at all times in our lives.
0: So, um, the audio was kind of mixed, so the term she's talking about is a the term she coined imperialist white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, and I always loved it because I thought it did encompass almost everything around each that was going on now, in the the dialectic and the everyday language, people just say white supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy. And that is just so limiting so much that it does not, it, it does not capture what's actually going on in society. The Democratic Party, in my opinion, has failed, uh, because they, they are unwilling to do what is necessary to, to reform the country. The Republican Party, by the way they're going is a, post-parliamentary system that in my opinion has stopped worrying about actual everyday kitchen table pocketbook issues and is hyper focused on culture war nonsense bell hooks and this is a 40 year career was able to 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 say in all those phrases what liberals tried to say a few years ago. That that word that kept going around, intersectionality, 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 which I did think was important, which is now laughable because everybody started using it. But but she said this is more than uh, white supremacy. This is uh, this is a little bit of that. This is also patriarchy. This is also capitalism. You know, this is also imperialism. And I think that at that point in time, she was searching for something. And I think she found it and we all benefited from it. So instead of saying imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, we all started saying we really need to deal with each other intersection in an intersectional way. So let's talk about intersectionality, right? But what is that actually saying? So I think about the young woman who was killed in the January 6th protest slash insurrection, right? Uh, Ashley Babbitt. Somebody who the mainstream media wants to phrase as this rabid dog, void of feelings, who is some sort of white supremacist. But when you look at this particular woman, I say that's just not true when you look at her in particular. This particular woman, Ashley Babbitt, the one who was killed on January six voted for Barack Obama, right? Voted for Obama, Obama voted for Donald Trump. What do you do with somebody who voted for Barack Obama and voted for Donald Trump? You can't say that that vote was purely based on race or white fear or even white anxiety politics or white grievance politics. This really weird term that I I, I reject, but it, it, either way, a lot of the grievances and frustrations that come with the, the Republicans, some people on the identitarian side of the left say, oh, that's just white grievance politics, and they ignore it, right? And that is wrong. You can't put Ashley Babbitt in that in in that type of politics, because what I see is somebody who is actively reaching and searching for some something that made her life make sense, that made it materially better. So that's not a race thing; it's a class thing. Okay, this Ashley Babbitt joined the U.S. military and served honorably and got a dis uh, got an honorable discharge. This Ashley Babbitt listened to Barack Obama' notion on hope and change and voted for that. And when that didn't work out, she voted for Trump. So you can't call this person a racist, sexist, bigoted, homophobe and actually be correct about that analysis. And I think that somebody like Bell Hooks tried to get at the root of that. It's not just white supremacy. That's too limited. It's not just imperialism that's too limited. It's not just imperialism or patriarchy that's too limited. It's not capitalism that's too limited. It is all these particular things that happen to be affecting us and individuals at very specific times in our lives. Sometimes... It seems like the weight of the, the mechanisms that my boss is putting on me, that's capitalism. I don't like to do this thing. I spend 40 to 55 hours doing this thing that I wouldn't do if you were not paying me to do this thing. That's work, right? I am doing this thing we all participate in called work. To support these people I love called family, friends, and community. And I'm spending more time at the thing I hate. So that I can support the things that I love, that I care about, that I enjoy. That's a trade-off. Well, that is... An economic system. So that is the 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 critique or the conversation about capitalism, right? Patriarchy is a critique of male dominance around certain sectors, but that is very simple. Imperialism is the is what we are living in this specific system. America is a settler colonial society. Christopher Columbus came here, there was already people here, we crushed the people here, we then went to other lands and stole other people and made them teal and work the land where we all debated whether if they were actual people. Right? Well that's imperialism. That's what we that's what happened then and what we still engage in now. So she tackled or she she worked very hard to tackle those things but she also was very honest she wasn't an imperialist, but she was she participated in capitalist structures even though she grew up in rural poor Kentucky represented by somebody who's been in politics for 36 years Mitch McConnell right so grew up in segregation was one of the first groups of students to 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 integrate schools. Left rural Kentucky, was educated in the in 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 all the institutions, and went back to Kentucky. You know what I mean? H- had a critique of uh, of capitalism because I mean in all in all seriousness, have has capitalism as far as the rich and the rest of us doesn't seem like it's working well for rural Kentucky you know these people vote red until they're dead and it doesn't seem like it's working for them so she had a critique of that but she also had a critique of not only past systems but systems that everybody was trying to Bring it to fruition. The systems that said we don't really critique empire. We just want this woman we like over that empire. She wasn't. She she was not about that life. If if a system is incorrect, it does not matter the gender of the person in that system. If the system is immoral, it doesn't matter who's at at the helms of that system and that's why i found her work so profound because she worked very hard to not be some sort of toady she worked very hard not to just toe the lines she worked very hard to always not just do the thing that a lot of people don't even do tell the truth as they see it believe it or not a lot of people don't tell the truth as they see it a lot of people go along to get along. A lot of people will see truth and figure out how they can navigate them, them themselves around that truth. Bell Hooks not only told the truth as she saw it; she was something that is very rare. She was in, you know, internally and existentially and self-reflective and open and honest in front of all of us in ways that is a uh, is so rare it makes it so genuine I remember the time where she said where she talked about victimhood etc she said I'm not always a victim there's times where because I'm in a boss I may be seen as oppressive I may you know there's a times that I am a dominator and there is times that I feel as I am oppressed and I felt like Just that simple statement is so true that most people don't say it. You have this thing now where we have victim culture and everybody pretends like they're a victim. I am oppressed and we play this game of the suffering Olympics. And that's just the way politics seem to say uh, Conservatives that I know will cry endlessly about being canceled. At the same time... They call everybody else snowflakes who are crying about being canceled. And I just don't take any of that superficial analysis serious, okay?
3: And that if I really want to understand what's happening to me right now at this moment in my life as a black female of a certain age group, I won't be able to understand it if I'm only looking through the lens of race. Mm. I won't be able to understand it if I'm only looking through the lens of gender. I won't be able to understand it if I'm only looking at white how white people see me. I mean one of the, one of the, the to me uh, an important breakthrough um, I felt in, in my work and that of others was the call to use the term white supremacy over racism because racism, in and of itself did not really allow for a discourse of colonization and decolonization, the recognition of the internalized racism within um, people of color. And it was always, in a sense, keeping things at the level at which whiteness and white people remained at the center of the discussion. In my classroom, I might say to to students, you know, that when we use the term white supremacy, it doesn't just evoke white people it evokes a political world that we can all frame ourselves in relationship to and i think that i was able to do that because i grew up again in a ra- in, in in racial apartheid where there was a color caste system so that obviously i knew that through my own experiential reality you know that It wasn't just what white people do to black people that was wounding and damaging to our lives. I knew that when we went over to my grandmother's house, who looked white, who lived in a white neighborhood, and she called my sister Blackie because she was dark and her hair was nappy, and my sister would sit in the corner and cry or not want to go over there. I knew that there is some system here that is is hurting this little girl that is not direct the direct hit from the white person. And white supremacy was that, that term that allowed one to, to acknowledge our collusion with the forces of, of racism and imperialism.
0: Collusion. Collusion. And,
3: and so for me, those words were very much about the constant reminder, one of institutional constructs that we're not talking about personal constructs in the sense of how do you feel about me as a woman or how do you feel about me as a black person, but they really seem to me to evoke a larger apparatus. And I don't know why they those terms have become so um, mocked by people because in fact, far from simplifying the issues, I think they actually, when you merge them together, really complicate the questions of freedom and justice globally because it means then that we have to look at what black people are doing to each other in Rwanda. We have to, and we we can't just Mm. say racism, what have you. We have to problematize nationalism beyond race in all kinds of ways that I think there's a tremendous reluctance, particularly in the United States, to do to have a more complex
0: imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy the, the, the forerunner for the term intersectionality it is not that white people are doing these bad things and we need to go and get them it is that systems have been created by a, cap- a social caste system where some people are at the top And some people are at the bottom. And the people in the middle are staring at the people at the bottom, working very vigorously not to get there. And sometimes we're pushing them down. Okay? And sometimes the people at the top are also pushing people down from the middle because they are absolutely afraid that if you reach up, you may grab them like a crab. And pull them down. The analogy is almost like the criminal justice system. On which I am very familiar because I have most of my non-intellectual life. I have worked in law enforcement. Okay. I particularly know and so do you. That innocent people sometimes go down. And sometimes they do not have the money. Or the time to fight a lot of these these cases, right? But yet and still, they'll take these plea deals. If you look up the amount of people who take plea deals, it's above 87%, which is a large amount. If 100% of people... Did not take plea deals. And they actually decided, I am going to be judged by a jury of my peers. There will be no mediation. There will be no plea deals. I'm going to take this to trial. The system will crumble. But because they don't have the money, they'll be get arrested for something they didn't do. Cause they fit the description, so they get arrested for that. And they got arrested on Friday at four forty-five p.m. Let's be let's be nice about this. They got arrested Friday at six p.m. The magistrate is not there on Saturday, so you you can't go to court on Saturday. You can't go to court on Sunday. The first time you're going to get a chance to decide when you're going to get to go to court is on Monday. So they, their family can call in for them and say, hey, they're sick. They won't be at work. So a crime they did not commit because they do not have the resources to take a plea deal. You know what? I'll take community service for 12 hours. And they plead guilty to a crime they didn't commit because they don't have the money to sit around and fight this case. They don't have the money to, to constantly take off work, to go to, to, to discovery process, to pick out the jury and they have to go. The officer was not, he was, is on a domestic so he can't show up or he took vacation or he's sick you And you have to go over and over again, so they take these plea deals and they they say they're guilty for things they didn't do. That's the system, okay? The people who are complicit in the system but may not be able to help it is the jailers, the bail bondsman, the bailiff, the defense attorney, the prosecuting attorney, the judge. The police. The stenographer. The court appointed reporter. People who have seen. Time and time again. Innocent people turn themselves over. As lambs to the slaughter. Okay. But the system is in place. That thing that I talked about earlier, where you love your family so much you have to support them, the capital is there. This person got caught. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So you justify, you rationalize, and you accept. An innocent person pleading guilty to something they didn't commit because you have other, other, other things in mind. You didn't think about your race, nor did you particularly think about their race, right? But, imperialism got them there. Capitalism got them there. White supremacy got them there. Patriarchy got them there. The inter... The intersectional things that are affecting all of us. Got them to where they're sitting. And you are the person that is going to enact their punishment. Whether you think they're guilty or innocent. That is the type of nuances that the bell hooks talked about, okay? And, 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 And that's the stuff I've always tried to wrestle with. I was somebody who was very blessed in the sense of the family I grew up in. But it was also great in deep torture, personally. You know, my father died. You know, at 17, 18 years old before I was born. I I, I think four to five months before I was born. It was remarkably painful. You know? I was raised by by a various number of aunts and sisters by adoption and grandparents. So I didn't grow up in poverty and rags. Everything I ever wanted, my family provided for me. Because I was the child, the miracle child of that, the long story, of their dead brother. So this wonderful life that I was able to amass only came from great trauma. My mother never, ever recovered. She loved my father, intensely. And when he was taken away, she did the same thing a lot of people do. She self-medicated. Okay? Some people will look at her and say, oh, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, okay? And I look at that life and I say, "It's, it's just not that simple. It's just not that simple. And that was a long time coming. A long time coming, I used to resent vigorously my mother, bi- biological mother. I was frustrated with the decisions of my father, deceased. The writings of Dr. Bell Hooks made me think about the world more critically, right? But it also made me question my own assumptions and it made me have a relationship with my mother that I would not have had if I was absolutely sure that they were so bad and I was so good and there was no excuse for what they had done to me. When I thought about, no, sometimes systems change the way good people actually behave it, it, it opened me up to this thing that Bell Hooks talked about. Redemption. Love. Forgiveness. Moving from pain to power.
6: I think that the important piece around high, the high heels, I, would, I guess a little bit about the high heels, and, and you say you won't wear high heels. I think the piece is that we, for me anyway, is that we don't demonize the woman who is in high heels, and we don't demonize the woman who is out of high heels. I think there is, there is a culture... That um, Julie that I work in, in in mainstream media that wants to say that all women should be in heels and all that. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's really, how do we begin to celebrate um, all the ways in which we want to comport ourselves and not say that one person is one, more feminist than the other and, and, and so that we can again find ways to, to come together across difference.
3: I think it's difficult because some people are more feminist than
6: others. Um, the fact is... This um, is glad we love
3: Bell Hooks. something that's been on my mind lately and it's been disturbing me is that if feminism is all things to all people then what is it? I mean if we, how do we locate it as a radical um, political movement in our lives if everybody just makes of it um, which doesn't mean that we should demonize but we do have to be clear about what are the boundaries um, that what what is the line that you cross that you, you can, in fact, um, say, I'm a feminist. Like, for me, my students will say, well, I'm an anti-abortion, but I'm a feminist. And I'll say, but that, that is impossible, because you can be, you can say, I would never choose to have an abortion, because I don't support that for myself. But there is no one who's genuinely a feminist who doesn't support reproductive rights for women. Um, and it's, again, I mean, it's so hard for us because we live in this binary world that's always saying, choose one thing or the other. I don't try to get someone to choose um, my values about abortion, but I do feel that the part of the essence of feminism is that women have control over women's bodies, that women have reproductive rights, all women. Um, and so you can't want to take that away from somebody and then brag about how feminist you are.
11: Look, well, a cultural critic, a feminist, a theorist, a political activist is recognized as one of America's leading intellectual she is a distinguished professor at the city college of new york she takes her name from her great-grandmother in recognition of female legacy and she uses lowercase lettering to reflect her awareness about ego and fame her previous books ain't i a woman and black looks provide new scholarship mixing academic writing with personal testimony Killing Rage, Ending Racism is her latest book, and I'm pleased to have her back here. Welcome back.
3: It's good to be back.
11: Uh, Last time you were here, we were having a conversation, and I had a bunch of letters, this is true, saying, uh, why did you allow those men, these were African-American men in this case, to beat up on Belle? And I said, Belle can take care of herself. Thank you very much.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I thought I took care of myself that evening, even though... I thought they tried to silence me, which is interesting. It wasn't
11: to silence you, but, but they, <laughs> they wanted to meet you. You came down on different sides, I think.
3: Well, the interesting thing was that the issue that night was white supremacy. And one of the things that they were doing was saying it's not that important. And it's interesting that shortly after that, we had the tragedy in Oklahoma. And then after that, there was the O.J. Simpson case coming to this this forefront of racial tension, drawing out the tension that's been in our culture for such a long time.
11: And what do you say about white supremacy today?
3: Part of what I say is that white supremacy, first of all, isn't a white thing. It's part of this culture. It's part of how all of us have been taught to think about difference. Who's better? Who's inferior? Who's superior? I prefer white supremacy to racism precisely because it says that we're all being socialized to think along certain dualistic lines. And that the notion of that which is light or white being better, that which is dark or black being worse, bad, inferior, is something that everyone in the culture is socialized to think.
11: I'm going to speak about some political events and and some uh, recent events first, and two things you know I want to talk about, about three things, actually. First is the Million Man March. What do you think?
3: Well, the Million Man March was something that I deeply and profoundly opposed. Um, I opposed it... Um, because I'm not one of those people who thinks you can separate messages from the messengers. I think that um, while the idea of black male solidarity and unity is a fine idea, just as I, who could not be moved by the images of all of those men, but underlying those images is a political ideology, is a way of thinking about family. I mean, just the other night I was giving a lecture at Dartmouth, and some young black men were saying, but how can it be wrong for black men to oppose welfare? And I said, well, it's one thing to say that black men should assume responsibility for families and another thing to look realistically at our job and employment situation and to say what would actually happen to many single parent households that women head if in fact there was not aid to assist women as the, in a process of change and transition, many of whom are, are, are hoping for jobs that don't exist.
11: What ideology back to what you were saying in terms of message and the messenger? What ideology or do you believe was being promulgated? Was it the nation of Islam?
3: Or no, actually, was it some I, other ideology. I would say that for, first and foremost it was patriarchy. I mean when someone tells me in their mission statement that no nation sends its women to war while the men sit in the kitchen, and you know the situation of race in America right now is like war you know, and the men are going to Washington. That, to me, is a real gender dialogue about conventional masculinity, which denies a history of race relations where the engagement of black women in resistance struggle has been so meaningful and so crucial. Would it have
11: been less effective, as effective, or much more effective if women had been part of it?
3: Let me go on record as saying, Charlie, I have no trouble if men want to march by themselves. Yeah. I feel like men could march for days by themselves, and I'd sit at home and cook and clean if they were marching for principles and values and politics um, that would actually aid black self determination. I happen to think that patriarchy has been deadly what, for the uh, planet uh, and for black men.
11: Okay, perhaps it has, but what said, who says that they were marching for patriarchy? I mean, that's what well, sure. I mean, I, I I'm to not listen sure that to was the. I, if you talk to all those people that were there, which I didn't, but I've talked to people who did talk to them and wandered through the crowd without television cameras and had lots of conversations and it didn't seem to be a patriarchy. It seemed about to be about responsibility and it seemed to be about some sense of of, of self-esteem and it seemed to be about <laughs> fathers and sons and fathers and daughters.
3: But that sense of responsibility was connected to particular notions about the family, not about self-responsibility first. Um, but It was the idea that, in fact, the old idea that men acquire self-esteem by the degree to which they can be providers and protectors. That is what patriarchy says to us. And what we know is that a lot of men provide, a lot of men protect, and they still have difficulties with self-esteem.
11: And black women, in, uh, in your judgment, um, endorsed feminism and, and uh, responded to it.
3: Well, in Killing Rage, I try to talk about the fact that it, that black women have questioned feminism because of our recognition that race is always a factor. So there's been a, a calling attention to racism within the women's movement, particularly the racism of privileged class women who were saying, you know, we're victimized because of, of certain issues that black women did not see as an occasion for victimization.
11: Did, did it put black women against white women then?
3: Yes, I think the core the, the, the reformist-based feminist movement very much pitted black women against white women by the fact that the discourses of, of women of color and black women were left out. For example, the, the early on a major thesis of feminism was women need to get out into the workforce. Right. Well, masses of black women were already out of the, into the workforce and weren't liberated.
11: The masses of poor women were already Absolutely. out of the workforce. Absolutely.
3: And that, and that kind of work, who is it liberating for? So there was a real distinction between those women Betty Friedan was describing as sitting at home, many of whom were well-educated, had been educated in the Ivy League or the Seven Sisters, you know, and weren't doing anything, and those masses of women who were in factories, who were, you know, cleaning people's homes, who did not see work as central to liberation, and who were, in fact, fantasizing about the days of their lives when they wouldn't have to work. So there's a chapter in Killing Rage about black and white female relations where I say, until our relationships improve, until black women and white women understand each other better, there will not be an end to racism in this society.
0: Uh, okay. So just, so just, so, so just, I'm sorry, wait a minute. So just that, that one bar, and this was an interview with Charlie Rose in 1995, Right. I think that part is so true of what what I pejoratively sometimes when I'm talking colloquially with my friends say white lady feminism, these little things that people say and it means absolutely nothing to anybody that is not outside of that particular tribe. Okay? So what if I used a new uh, philosophical term is as far as at least in academia you would say race reductionism which i have always just fundamentally rejected i thought it was very very simple and it didn't explain a lot a lot but if you saw life from that particular lens i understand how you'd always see everything this particular way and sometimes you would be correct and you may be at a may even at a very particular time in life be more correct than most people around you, but I looked at the gaping blind spots it would cause, and I think the um, difference in the way we view trials when we hear guilty not guilty verdicts proves that sometimes looking at life through particular lenses is um, create these massive blind spots. But anyway, so that's what I mean when I say her work was so profound and how she didn't always go along to get along. When she points to that particular nuance that when first wave feminism happened and they were having these debates about the right for women to work, it actually, even though now we all tacitly agree that women should work and yada yada. The first wave feminism ignored the fact that there were already a particular subset of group of women that had been working. And not only had they been working, they had been working for at least, for at least 70 years. You know, it all depends on where you, where you put, uh, American history starting and where first wave feminism began. you know what i mean so if you, if you say well, i believe in the 1619 project okay then obviously black women or people of color have been working longer if you say i think that i'm going to start my map on where life again is at 1776 you still run into the same problem from 1776 Till the the nineteenth century, when what 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 is called colloquially, and people do reject the term, first wave feminism began. And so, I mean, when when you talk about that, it, your first wing feminism, you know, uh, it it came relatively after. I mean, a vindication of 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 the rights of women. Didn't happen till 1792. Now, granted, there was a particular article, uh, equality of the sexes that came out all the way in, in 1673. But, uh, um, so, so that's where you get the 16th century thing. But if the country is founded in 1619 or the first slaves hit, these land in 1619 still in 1673 that was when the equality of the the sexes came out and that was you know it wasn't in america it was uh by francis uh pauline de la Bera and so that didn't affect you know us uh, early american feminism was directly coordinated with the abolitionist movements and as a result, many famous feminists and activists at that particular time began to to have their voices heard, and that was people like former saints, like uh, you know uh, Sojourner Truth, uh, so and Elizabeth Beckwell, J- Jane Adams, and Dorothy Day uh, came later. But the first wave of feminism was primarily led. By white women in the middle of class, and when it wasn't actually until what's, you know, is still debated, the second wave of feminism that women of color began developing their voice. The term uh, feminism actually was created like a political industry ideology at that period. Feminism emerged by the speech about the reform and correction of democracy based on egalitarianism and the egalitarian conditions later on in the in the middle period of second wave feminism, okay? And so somebody like uh you know Judith uh Sergeant uh Murray didn't really publish the articles or start talking about the feminism until or not until they were influential until like the early 1790. So the country's founded in 1776. The first article that was widely accepted on the equality of the sexes was in 1790. And it was blaming poorer standards of female education as the root of uh, actually women's uh, problems. Now, however, uh, there were personal scandals which is kind of it started then but it's still very present to us now and I was surrounding the personal lives of the the uh, contemporaries who were English you know uh, Catherine uh, Messalini and, and Mary uh, Wall Stonecraft, and that pushed feminist authorship into private correspondence and and, and so it it is it's just one of those things that even feminist essays from like John Neal and in Blackwood magazines and the Yankee in the eighteen twenties, you know, fill that intellectual gap between Murray and the leaders of like eighteen forty eight, uh, the Seneca Fall the Seneca Falls Convention, and that is actually what's generally considered to be the beginning of first ways, first wave feminism. So as male writers actually insulated themselves from, like, common forms of attack against female feminist thinkers, uh, like, news advocacy was crucial to bringing uh, feminism at the forefront of, you know, America's mainstream. So you have to think uh, from 1619 to 1848 is a very long period of time, just like from 1619 to 1790. Is a long period of time from 1776 from uh, 790 is a shorter period of time. But uh, that's not just what people accept. It's more appropriate to say from 1760, to kind of 1848 is when people kind of took notice. And it, by people, I mean the people in power, which would have always have been the males, Right.
11: Uh, Not so much, uh, obviously I'm fascinated by whether people thought he did it or not, Uh, but beyond that, are you surprised by the reaction to it?
3: I I was deeply surprised and troubled by the reaction to it because I feel like I was one of the people who who religiously tried not to watch the case precisely because I felt um, in respect to the fact that this was a case rooted in domestic violence. Here again, I don't think that people can pretend that in fact somehow the domestic violence doesn't matter, this tragedy would not have happened if male violence against women was not so acceptable in our culture. Because there is a line leading up to the tragedy. Whether we know who who murdered this woman or not, we do know that a whole life that was structured around acceptance of violence was a part of how this couple related to one another. And that, to me, made me feel like, Once this becomes entertainment, once the camera is focused on O.J. Simpson, people will forget that at the heart of this is both male violence and male violence against women. Because we've not heard anybody speculate that a group of women were outside that house chopping up anybody. So clearly, we cannot get away from the dilemma of male violence in our culture and male violence against women. And I try to hold to that as a way of, of not deflecting attention away from the fact that this was not an issue of race. I mean that the case itself was not an issue of race. How we interpret it, how we witness it as a culture, it was racialized, but the heart of it still for me remains male violence against women.
11: And but what what, what about those, including Johnny Cochran, I guess who would say, no, no, it was about race because it was about race and and it's because of the attitude of the New York of the LA.
3: Well, I think, one, even before we knew anything about the attitude of the LAPD, we know that whenever sexuality is involved and and gender in our culture, people often prefer to talk about race. Race is easier for people, it's easier to racialize something, because if we make it a case of gender, we have to see a man like O.J. Simpson as very empowered by class and by patriarchy. If we make it a case of race, we can see him as always and only a victim. And so, of course, it was very important for men in general, and Cochran in particular, himself, you know, according to his his ex-wife, someone who, who is no stranger to domestic violence, to act as though the only issue here is one of racial injustice.
11: Uh, Bell Hook's Killing Rage, Ending Racism, this is a collection of essays uh, about... Uh, a whole range of subject matter having to do with men and women and gender and violence and rage and a lot of other things. My friend Cornell West says, unlike most black intellectuals, she writes with a sense of urgency about the existential and psychocultural dimensions of African-American life, especially those spiritual and intimate issues of love, hurt, pain, envy, and desire, usually probed by artists. Her books help us not only to decolonize our minds, soul, and bodies, on a deeper level, they touch our lives. It is difficult to read a bell hooks essay or text without enacting some form of self-examination or self-inventory, which is exactly what she would like you to do. Thank you. Pleasure.
0: We thank. So to be flat out honest, um, with somebody who wrote forty books and was a public intellectual, I could be here. For 40 books worth of content. And every public speech that was ever given that profoundly affected me. Or I found deep or thought provoking. So I'm going to end with the ancestor. And somebody that I still have uh, present. Um, the Bell Hook community. Bell Hooks in Cornell West. Uh, so this was a Beloved, you know, something that they did together.
3: I mean, partially, Cornell and I are going to address some of the difficulties of where we begin with love, Beloved Community. I haven't seen Cornell for a while, and the first thing I said to him today was, I still love you because... For the first time since I have known Cornell, I feel significant political differences with him um, as I go around, Uh, and it's been interesting to me because it was very difficult for me, because he has been such a comrade, and is such a comrade, to disagree with him and to, to be public about saying, I don't agree with something he said. And I think that that goes to the heart of how we often conceptualize community wrongly and beloved community wrongly which is that we do not have a space for disagreement and that disagreement means somehow the end of love and not that Mm. it's the beginning of a fuller, deeper, richer love
7: Very much so. Very much so. Would you like me to read this quote that you We were going to you?
3: start reading a quote because, from Martin Luther uh, King. Yeah, we think
7: this is an appropriate starting place other than saying that we're glad to be here. It's always a joyous occasion for me to be here with my comrade and colleague and sister, Bell Hooks, I must say. I was talking about how much I love Bell Hooks. Uh, uh, and I'd like to thank Brother Thomas uh, Michaelson for his visionary leadership of this institution to bring us for bringing us together. But we thought it would be crucial to begin with this quote from Brother Mark. Luther King Jr. It's from his speech. Where do we go from here? Martin says, I have decided to love. May you see. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. And the beautiful thing is that we are moving wrong when we do not do it because John was right. God is love. He who hates and This is Martin saying he he who hates does not know god but he who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality that's from mark
3: i have decided to love if you're seeking the highest good i think you can find it through love and the beautiful thing is that we're moving wrong when we don't do it because john was right god is love she who hates does not know god But she who has love has the key that unlocks the door to the meaning of ultimate reality.
7: And for me, love is not a soupy surpy kind of thing. And, And I think this is crucial because in a market culture like our own, in a hotel civilization like America, love is either reduced to some kind of stimulatory lust or some kind of sentimental passion. But love is about struggle. What Sister Bell was talking about when she acknowledged the degree to which we have various kinds of disagreements, she was saying, Cornell, or Brother Cornell, we need to escalate the level of our struggle together. And one of the reasons why it's so difficult to talk about love in America is because we live in such a sentimental and melodramatic culture. Which is to say, we like to stimulate feelings without any serious action or commitment. Wow. And of course, you cannot talk about love without talking about death. Wow. And of course, America's been denying death ever since she began the city on the hill. The city, the cities on the hill don't die; they're eternal. They're above history. They last forever. But love is fundamentally about death because it's about profound desire. Facing certain limits, but struggling nevertheless. And of course, we cannot invoke Martin's talk about love without acknowledging the degree to which he loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. Each and every one of us. Now, I'm not suggesting that martyrdom is normative for serious struggle. But it's always lurking in the background for those who are serious about love. We talk about our love. I talk about loving my wife, Elaney, and so forth. I'm willing to take a bullet for them. That's serious. I love my mother. I'm willing to take a bullet for her. That's serious. Now, whether I'm willing to take a bullet for each one of you all is another question. But I'm in process
3: and this is one of the spaces where we don't always agree i'm much more in, interested in the symbolic willingness to the willingness to die to things of the of the past symbolically and be born again that is to say i think that when we talk about love in connection to racism and white supremacy essentially we're asking that all of us in this nation be willing to die to values attitudes beliefs that many of us have held on for years and be born again in another way of thinking about the world, um, in another way of thinking about people. Should we pause for a minute, brother? Okay. I want to
7: lift up the mic. It's still, it's still hard to hear.
3: Can I ask a question? Because I'm not interested in having this afternoon be subordinated to radio. Um, I'm not saying that I'm not excited about the radio. I'm saying that I want us to have our time and the radio to have its time, too. I think even what we saw here exemplified in our lived practice, that if you want to change the structure of something or intervene on it, you have to be willing to have that little moment of chaos. You cannot have... You cannot have the smooth running system and I think one of our resistances to change is we want the smooth running system, whether we're talking about our personal lives and love, the community of our domestic households or, and and yet we're smart enough as a nation to know you don't get a smooth running system in your personal household that you really have to process. As we had to process just a few minutes ago, and the reason I bring that up is often we respond negatively to the moment of process. Mm-hmm. You know, even myself, you know, one of the things when I said to Cornelis, you know, I don't agree with some of the things you're saying lately. But I didn't really want to greet him after not seeing him for such a while with having to admit that I don't agree. Now think about that. We're two people who forge so much in dialogue and I can still feel afraid to say to him, I don't agree with you. And I think that so much of our shying away from anti-racist struggle is the fear that we have that when we come together in our differences and there is disagreement, we will have conflict and everything will fall apart. So many people feel it's better not to come together. It's better to stay with people that are just like yourself, where you can feel safe, where the smooth running can happen without any moment of chaos or conflict. But in the true spirit of both spiritual and political revolution, in the best sense, we cannot begin to build beloved community without embracing the moments of tension and conflict as part of the, the struggle. As part of what we're seeking.
0: I think I have to end it there. Learning how to embrace. The conflict and struggle. And to reject. The notions that it's. Better. To avoid conflict by us. Doing this self segregation model. Safe spaces. Etc. Yet yeah, I see the way. The. Country is going in right now. Uh, uh, I am in. I am in deep distress about this loss, and um, this too shall pass. I love you all, and thank you for tuning in, and I will see you on the next. Uh, Darrell McLean Show. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Of course, if you want to support the show, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com and getting a membership for as little as $3 a month. Again, that's slash the Darrell McLean Show. Show is fully listener-supported, independent media that won't lead you to tribalism. Get a membership and support independent media at www.patreon.com slash the McLean Show.